Okay, so today I'm going to uh, preach on something, um, well, actually a series. I'm going to teach. I normally do a lot of preaching, but I'm actually going to do a teaching series for probably the next 12 weeks on a particular subject. So it means I'm going to go into a little bit more detail than I normally would, um, but I think it's important. And I've given it this really grandiose title of The Blueprint for the End Time Church. But it's completely 100% biblical, you'll be pleased to know. Um, So what... What I want to talk about today, um, actually, Tracy, can you man the OHP thing as well? Because I've got like a nice little illustration for everybody as well. Um, what I think we often struggle with is actually defining what is church, don't we? We all have our ideas. Um, we're all like, well, I think a church should be, is this, and I think a church looks like that, and this is a church, and that's not really a church. We all have our biblical idea of what we think is a church. Um, But I think we really need to come back to the heart of Scripture and actually really define what is actually the church and what does it really mean and what does it actually represent. And so there's going to be three key areas that I'm going to look at over the next couple of months. But based on this design here, so as you can see, that's not like dead people hanging around the temple there. That's actually just really small people. So around these people, around this temple there, you've got the outer courts. You see that? Yeah, so, uh, well, actually, that's the outer, outer court, so we won't worry about that. So in the, you see the temple with a wall around it. They, the, where the walls are on the inside, that's the um, outer courts. And so in there, you've got, like, the women's court. You've got the Gentiles' court. And incidentally, it was the Gentiles' court where Jesus lost his temper. With, I think he lost his temper with everyone and drove everyone out with a whip because that was the place where they had the money changers. Um, and obviously the Gentiles were being robbed of worship to God and God was being robbed of worship of the Gentiles so he freaked out a little bit about that and then then you come into the actual sanctuary itself which is the big building at the that's uh, sticking up there now if you go to the next slide trace and within the sanctuary you've got two sections uh, the first section is known as the holy place and then you can't really see it very clearly on that diagram but the back of it then there's a second section which is known as the most holy place where the ark of the covenant resided um, and basically what I want to talk about for the next probably couple of months is the three types of Christian life that come out of those places so you have inner court life which is that section there and that's coming to grips and understanding the priestly function of believers in the church because you don't get a lot of uh, preachers or a lot of churches actually teach on the priesthood of believers and what does that actually mean for us and and what is my role as a priest and does the Bible even say that I am a priest and then we come to what I call the outer court life and this is the communal function of the church I a community of faith and love as we see in Acts chapter 2 and then finally the the actual the, the other picture which was the centrality of temple life which is the influence of the kingdom culture of God through the church into the world around us. And in that comes mission and evangelism and all of that kind of stuff. So, are you all up for this? So this is the next couple of months. We're really going to learn what actually, what is church according to what the Bible says. Now, why is this all relevant and why do we care and why do we want to know? Because at Living Word, what we're trying to do over the next couple of years is we're going to be gradually changing our culture so that we follow a more biblical pattern of church rather than uh, the kind of current model that we've been using. Why? Because as you know, we're about to build, we've had our planning put in now for, pre-planning put in for our big huge barn, which is a 200-seater building with residential areas and stuff. Am I allowed to put a picture of it up soon? 
Yeah, cool, right, so we've had the okay, so I'll show you a picture of it next time, of what it looks like, it's very pretty, very nice. And, uh, and so with that will come what we believe is what God is trying to get his church to come back to, this model, and so that that building will be like uh, a blueprint uh, of that model, and we will be living that model in that building, and then hopefully all our other church plants will then become expressions of that model and stuff. So, we now need to come to our first primary foundation. What is the church's first and primary mission? What actually is the church's responsibility? What is it from a fundamental DNA point of view? What actually is the church? And it's very rawest, okay, at the very bare ma- uh, minimum, at the very basic. So if you want to find the answer, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 56. Well, the Old Testament? Yeah, Isaiah 56. And uh, we're going to look at verse 7. So Isaiah 56 and verse 7. And it says, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. My house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Um, And that's pretty much the nub that I want us to start with, is that God's house is to be called a house of prayer. So the very first premise of the church's existence and the very first foundation stone of understanding what is the church is it is first and foremost a house of prayer. The model that that we eschew today is very much a missional type model, but I'll come to that in time. But that isn't actually how Jesus has declared his church to be. The church does have a mission. You're to go into all the world and make disciples. But the church's primary function at at its most basic fundamental is to be a house of prayer. That is the identity of a church. And we know that Jesus said in Matthew 21, 13, and he reiterates that verse saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer. prayer. Hallelujah. Okay, good. You're with me so far. This is absolutely fundamental. So now let's turn to a few other scriptures. Now, if we go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23. Actually, I'll take it from verse 22. Ephesians 1. Verse 22 and 23, which says, And he, that's God the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, that's Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The first thing that I need to mention here, which is really important, is that the church is the body of Christ. This isn't a slogan, this isn't a bumper sticker, this isn't a theological concept, this is a spiritual reality. The church is the body of Christ. Now what, now this is where we get into ourselves into trouble. When people come into the room and say, hi, I'm the church, I'm here, okay? There's only one person that can say he is the church and that's his body and that's Jesus Christ. We are individual members of his body. We are not individually the church. You can only be the church corporately because by the very name in the Greek, the ecclesia, it means a community that are called out and gathered together for a specific function. 
Okay, that is church. It is a gathering together of people. Now, I'm going to go into a lot more on this in a second, so I'll just move on for a bit. So now let's move to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Okay, and it says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are being formed, we are being put together as living stones, so no one of us is the church, but individually we are living stones which form the house of God. Okay, so today in this room, we've got a little mini house of God. And then in locally where other churches are all worshipping, we're forming a bigger house of God. Then regionally, a bigger house of God. Then nationally, a big house of God. Then worldwide, a huge house of God. Okay, so to be in the church, which or if you want to use other words like congregation or you want to use the Greek word ekklesia, it literally means called out ones that come together and that gather for a specific purpose but of course then what is the specific purpose of the church okay now i like to use the word church it doesn't have a, i don't have an issue with it i know some people are like i don't like the word church because it's too loaded for me well you could use the scottish word word for church which is kirk if that makes you feel any better uh, or you can use assembly whatever it is it doesn't make any difference what word you use it still amounts to the same thing we'll look at what does that even look like well let's have a look now so firstly, I'm just going to talk about what the Hebrew words for some things mean, and then I'll link it back into our New Testament. So the Hebrew word, or so Hebrew um, term for house of prayer, is a bet, which means house, ha, the, tefillah, prayer, okay? House or ha, of. So house of prayer, okay? A bet, tefillah. A bet, yeah, bet, ha, tefillah, okay? And you're probably, why, why are you going into this? Just, just bear with me, okay? So... So, a, and this is what is better known today as a synagogue. Anyone know what a synagogue is? Okay, so a synagogue, we all know what that is. Now, hold on to that word because that's really important. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I'm not just clutching random straws here. I'm bringing all this together so you can see it biblically. So, first and foremost, a synagogue is a bet hatafila. It is a house of prayer and a house of worship, okay? Uh, but it is also known as a bet ha knesset. And the word knesset means an assembly. So, so the very nature of a synagogue is to have us corporately gathering together, okay? Oh, good. <laughs> and then the third meaning for synagogue is bet midrash. And midrash means a house of teaching. So a house of prayer must have three components. It must, have, it must be a house of prayer and a house of worship. It must be a place of assembly, i.e. where people come together. And it also must be a house of teaching. Okay, all right, with me so far? Hallelujah. Okay, now you might say then, well, Chris, where's this in the New Testament church? I don't see this. Where's this in the Bible? Well, follow me to Acts chapter 2. Now, please understand, the 12 apostles, what faith, what, 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 what's, their, what's their culture? They are 
Jewish, right? So they were brought up with this culture. So it stands to reason that some of that's going to come over. So let's have a look at Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. Come on, Acts, where are you? So Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. Now look at what's being listed here. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, all right, to their midrash, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So that the house of prayer, prayer and worship. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, pleasing God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we can see straight away from this. Um, it says that they gathered daily at the temple. Okay, so they corporately came together. There's the assembly. And then it also says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they had formal teaching that was being given to them. So they filled, fulfilled the midrash part. Um, so there they had, uh, what have we got? So uh, we've had the midrash, we've had the tefillah, tef uh, the, tef the prayer, and we've had the knesset, the gathering together. So or straight away from the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, you can see those three elements are already defining the identity of the church. Now, when the uh, first century church were in their house before the Holy Spirit fell on them, what were they doing in the upper room? Praying. Okay. All right. And then the Holy Spirit came, etc. And then from there, they started moving into other aspects of their faith. And you can just see what Christianity or the move of the Spirit did to the early church and did in early Jerusalem. It was amazing. Now, so we can see that the early church's uh, model of church was at its heart prayer, assemblage and devoting themselves to teaching. Okay, so, so far, so good. Now turn with me to Hebrews 10, 25. And we'll come back to that word synagogue again. Hebrews 10, 25. Uh, it says, Let us not forsake the assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. This is the day of the Lord, the end of days. Now, that was written 2,000 years ago. Do you think that we are closer to the end times now than we were back then? Yes. Okay, so if he was saying then 2,000 years ago, guys, you've got, to, you've got to keep meeting together, assembling together, okay, because the day of the Lord is approaching. If it was important for them then, then how more, much more do you think it's important for us now? Yeah. We really are coming towards the end of days. Hallelujah. Now, what's interesting is the word there, for assembling. Okay, here we go. It's a little Greek les lesson here. The Greek word, if I can say it correctly, is episunagoge, which is where the word synagogue comes from. Okay, there it is in the Greek. There it is in your Bible. And what that verse is telling you is it's saying that do not forsake the assembling together. That is a, an official gathering together where you come to worship and to pray and to learn teaching from the Bible. Okay, that's, that's literally what the author of Hebrews is saying to those guys because they knew what a synagogue was. And so and this, is the f this is the only time in your whole Bible where you'll see 
the importance of gathering corporately for an official synagogue type meeting. And within that context, there has to be uh, leaders as well. And this is another reality of, of church. We get a lot of people saying, no, church doesn't need leadership. Church doesn't have to have leaders, etc. Well, I would disagree because we know in Titus, uh, Paul says to Titus, hey, go to all the churches and make elders, etc. in all the congregations. And then it gives the requirements for leaders. Then we know in Timothy, Paul says to Timothy to do pretty much the same thing. And here's the requirements for leadership. And we know in the Acts chapter, uh, well, the early Acts church, where um, the 12 apostles were like getting overrun with too much to do. And so they said to the congregation, hey, guys, we're too busy. Can you go and find 12 people, godly people that can actually you know, take on some of the work? And they, be kind of come of the, they became the first unofficial kind of deacons in, in New Testament Christianity. So it was important that you needed leadership, you needed governance, there needed to be structure, but it is first and foremost a house of prayer. And it is first and foremost as well a place where we congregate together, and it is first and foremost a place where we receive teaching. Okay, That is the very definition of what a church is. So forgive me for being rude, but three Christians getting together at a coffee shop, coffee shop, thinking that's church, that isn't church. That's three Christians hanging out together, drinking coffee in a coffee shop. Okay. But what if they start praising God? And yeah, that's a good question. Maybe if the Christians were in a coffee shop and they started like praying to God and worshiping him, and then they got the Bible out and started studying it, well, then that would be classified as a form of church life and as an expression of church. Yeah. But if it's just Christians meeting together. But what about that verse that says when two or three gathered together, there am I in the midst of it. The context is prayer, not church. Okay, he's talking about there am I in the midst of the agreement of those when two or three are gathered together. Look at the passage in context. It's all about prayer, not about church. Okay, so far, so good. Hallelujah. Now, why is all this important? Because I think, and I'm guilty of this as well, when we first started planting churches many years ago, uh, we were planting missional based models. So, what we did is we chucked people and said, there you go, you're in a zone there, that's it do the whole church thing and be missional church that area. And yes, church should be missional. I'm not denying that. But the actual core values of those church plants were not actually what's set down in scripture. Okay, we were doing things that were scriptural, but we weren't actually modeling really what the Bible says the church should look like. And that is first and foremost, it should be a house of prayer. What we generally see is missional churches and prayer is an add-on and a bolt-on. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're a missional church. We're doing all this. We're doing all this. We're doing all this stuff. We're great. We're blah, 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 blah. And when's your prayer? Oh, we do like a night of prayer and that's like on a whatever. And that's, that's it. It's prayer, prayer life of the church is a bolt-on or an add-on. It should be the other way around. Actually, it shouldn't be the other way around. It should be everything comes out of the inner sanctuary because in the inner sanctuary is where the glory of God is. It's, well, we'll come to that later when it says it in Ezekiel. Okay. Now, why am I setting out this kind of blueprint you know, this whole idea of inner court life, outer court life and the centrality of temple life is because I believe in the end of days, God wants to restore and rebuild the tabernacle of David. Now, I know a lot of people don't know what that means. It's from Acts, the book of Acts, and it's from Amos and various other scriptures. And I'm going to cover that over the next few weeks as to actually what that is, both in context of for Jesus and in context for for the church. And what does it mean for us as priests? Because this is the identity that we're not taught in church. You, every one of you in this room, you are all priests. 
but are you operating in your priestly function? Do you know what is the fullness of your priestly function and your priestly obligations to God? Yeah, and a lot of Christians don't. And I think there's a lot of Christians that are very dissatisfied with church as we know it, etc., because they're not act- they're doing all the outer court stuff, but they're not actually doing the inner court stuff where the priest and the, and the priests go, the high priest and the priests go, because we're just not doing that. And so I'm trying to bring us back to the core values of what the Bible is saying is that God's house must first and foremost be a kingdom of priests and a house of prayer. And if we don't have that mindset and if we don't have that mentality, I don't believe we're doing it right. And I believe in the days that we're moving to, as times get worse and worse and worse, we need to be houses of prayer. Now, in my research of church history and stuff, um, you know, some of the greatest pioneering evangelists in this country were actually the Celts. I mean, they just took, took them a few hundred years, but, you know, it wasn't the communications we have now. But they literally went from, I believe, the top of Britain right down to the bottom. And they, they managed to turn a pagan nation to being on fire for Jesus. Well, how did they do it? What they did is they didn't come in. They, they did do this, but primarily they came in and they set houses of prayer. Those houses of prayer became education centers, places of learning, and from there they sent missionaries out, and then they planted little churches that, that, centralized, that linked into the central hub of a house of prayer. And then, of course, that was the norm for a long time, and even in this area, Titchfield, you know, we had a, a main house of prayer, which is Titchfield Abbey. And of course, when King Henry VIII with his dissolution of, the, of all the monasteries, etc., he destroyed the heart of the church by taking prayer out of it until we're left with a Sunday box. And that's the model we've been running with for the last 500 years. And I think that model is old, tired, and it's running out of energy. So let's have a look at some more scriptures. So if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, yep, 1 Peter chapter 2, same similar verse as what we looked at a minute ago, but just expanding a little bit. So 1 Peter chapter 2, 5 to 9. Um, and it says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Okay, so, so here we are a house of prayer and we are a holy priesthood. Okay, so you have jobs. Now I need to make this clear. Where does evangelism and all that kind of stuff fit into here? Well, that fits in to the outer court life. We will get that as, the, as I get through these sessions. They will be like the third phase of what I want to talk about. Mission is, impo- is important to the church. Absolutely. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying that we've been doing things back to front. We think it's all about mission and getting everybody safe. But actually, no, your primary ministry is to minister to God and then minister to man. Because the church is guilty of idolatry. It always wants to minister to man. It always wants to get on a platform and have a ministry and name etc etc but it's not prepared to do the time on its knees in prayer before it gets on the platform and I think a powerful church is a praying church and the church that we need to see in the days ahead has to be a praying church if we're going to get through the times that we're going to get through that's how it used to be but but we don't do that so much now and you can see you can just look at the prayer meetings uh, the prayer life in the average church it's very poor but I don't think it's poor because Um, people just hate prayer and they can't be bothered. I think it's because people just don't understand who and what they are in Christ. Because if they did, man, that prayer room would be full. Because, uh, man, I want to serve God in the purpose. I want to serve the purposes of God in my generation as a a priest, as as a kingdom of priests to my God. 
And I'm going to teach us over the next few, few months what that looks like, how you serve God as priests and all of this kind of stuff. So I'm literally today I'm just setting a kind of foundation, okay? All right, so anyway, carrying on. So verse five, so you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone. This is Jesus, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Uh, And then if we move down to verse nine, and it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, I don't know how many times, how many more scriptures I need to keep reading to us before we get the fact that we are priests and we have a job to do as priests. Hallelujah. Okay. But we just don't think of ourselves as priests, do we? It's almost like, a I don't know. I don't know what people think these days, but that's not what's taught from the pulpit. Our identity, first and foremost, is you're a chosen race and you are a royal priesthood before you're an evangelist, before you're whatever. You are first and foremost a priest unto God. Okay. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Now, I said this last week when we looked at, I think it was Ephesians 1, 3, you're a chosen race. You know, it says in Ephesians that God chose you in him before the foundation of the earth. Before you did anything right or wrong, he already chose you. Before you did anything right or wrong, he chose you. Is it Romans 9? It says, you know, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. And I was like, ah, but Chris, that must be the foreknowledge of God. God knew that Jacob was a nice man and he knew that Esau was a loser. No, that's not what it says. It says he chose them in the womb before they'd even done anything right and wrong. He chose them according to his election and his decision and nothing to do with um, Jacob and nothing to do with Esau. And so when he died before the foundation of the earth, it had nothing to do with what you would do or what you wouldn't do. Because if it's based on what you do and don't do, then salvation is based on works. And Paul really doesn't like that. You know, Paul's like, no, salvation is not by works, but it is by faith. And faith in Christ is what gets you saved. And then when you're saved, then you've got some works to do, but you don't get saved by works. Okay? And some people might say, ah, but Chris... It's the foreknowledge of God who knew those people that would choose him. So in other words, what you're saying is salvation is still dependent upon man's choice to accept God. Again, that's putting all the onus back on man again and not on God. Yes, you get to say yes or no, but the onus is first on God. Because the Bible says whilst you were still sinners, Christ was crucified for you. Nothing to do with you. Nothing to do when you got your life in order. Yeah. The religious Christianity says, oh, You must have a perfect life before dot, dot, dot. No, Jesus said, whilst you were still sinners, I went to the cross and I died for you. Not when you got your life together. I got a really itchy nose. That's really annoying. Okay, anyway. Yes? Can I just say, you know from the scripture you just read out, so basically how I understand it is that Jesus had his 11 disciples, Yeah. but I think that the church is basically the disciples of God. So he has to be chosen to let it's everybody that goes to church are the word of God, which is the disciple. Am yeah. Right? Yeah, so what, what Jesus did is he modelled, obviously you have the 12 apostles. What's special about the 12 apostles is that they become literally the foundation stones of the church, okay? Um, and, but which is different from us. But, you, but then, you're right in what you say, because then 
what they modeled and what they then taught and preached to the church is a multiplication effect that everybody else became a living stone of the same temple of which they are the foundation stones of. And so we are all apostolized by God to go out to the nations and tell people about you know, the love of God and stuff. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, that's a really good point because we are called the word apostle means to be sent. OK, that's why I don't think that seeker sensitive churches is a biblical model because when i look at what a biblical model is it's a house of prayer is an assembly a place of praise and worship and is a place of teaching it is not a seeker sensitive place now that's not to say that people that don't believe in jesus can't come of course they are and they're more welcome to and we should love on them and bless them etc but i don't make because I, I, the churches that tend to be seeker sensitive, and this is a generalization, so please forgive me, but generally the Christians that they tend to make tends to be quite weak Christians. And that's because they're not really getting firm and strong foundations. Now, there are good seeker sensitive churches that have very good discipleship programs, so that's fine. But generally, that's not the case. And generally, I, I hear a lot of Christians in seeker sensitive churches that get dissatis dissatisfied with the quality and the level of the teaching because they don't feel like they're getting fed enough. Okay, that means they're hungry. Okay, you don't want hungry sheep that are like rumbling bellies after they've left. Okay, so now also I'm only merely talking about a church meeting. Okay, the church is not just what we do here, but it's our lives together, as we saw in Acts 2 as well, where we do life together. Okay, we don't do life on our own, we're not little satellites that just do our own little thing. We do life together. We just kind of break down into smaller mini, more, smaller units throughout the week and stuff. Now, anyway, Revelation 1.6. And it says, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Man, I could just go on all day just reading priests, priests, priests. Yeah, this is what you are. This is what I am. Hallelujah. Let's go to Revelation 5 verse 10. I don't like the book of Revelation. Never mind, it's not too scary. Revelation 5.10. And it says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Glory be to God. Now, you've got to get a bit of eschatology in here. When will you reign on the earth? Unfortunately, not just yet. What you do is you have to, if Jesus tarries, you've got to die first. And then when he comes back, then there's the resurrection of the dead. And when you're raised from the dead, then you will get, if you've been good Christians, then you'll be given rewards and you'll get to help reign over the earth. Remember the parable of the talents and the guy that, I don't know, I get confused with, it's like one with 10 talents, one with five and one with one or something. And then the guy with 10 and the guy with five, he said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. And he said, in the next stage, you will rule over five cities or you'll rule over 10 cities, okay? Because you're called to rule and reign. So what you do now is gonna echo into your resurrection. And this is why Paul says, I pummel my body and I do everything I can to obtain a better resurrection. I don't just want to be a resurrected being and God say, oh, okay, so you can, uh, you can oversee that street. I, I want to be faithful in the things of God so I can, I don't know, I mean, it's, maybe I'm being greedy, but why not oversee, I don't know, Bogner or something or, or oversee Hampshire or something. You know, think big, guys, gospel. No, think bigger. Just think, you know, that God would entrust you for what you do in this life into heavenly rewards that will enable you to, again, be priests and to rule and to reign when Jesus returns. I'm excited by that, hallelujah. Woo! 
uh, Exodus 19. This is how I live my life. I don't live my life like, oh, what am I going to do today, Jesus? I know that every day that I'm, I'm, I'm on my knees and I'm praying and I'm doing things, I'm doing acts of kindness and I'm serving God and I'm serving his church and doing everything he's called me to do. I know that I'm working towards a better resurrection so that I get jobs to do in the resurrection. I know some of you are thinking, man, I don't want any work to do in the resurrection. I was kind of hoping for an easy life. No, but you'll be in immortal bodies that won't get tired. Is that better? Yeah, that's not so bad. And you'll look good as well. Hallelujah. So Exodus 19, verse 6. Exodus 19, verse 6. And it says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now, there's some great stuff that we're going to look at next time where we actually look in the Old Testament about the whole priesthood and how the, all the firstborn were to be priests and how that then got negated and how then the sons of Levi became priests and what does that mean to us as Christians now. We're going to look at all that, some really fascinating stuff that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. Um, but to understand who we are as priests this is where you do need to know your Old Testament. And this is where we're going to have to go into some dangerous books like the book of Leviticus and stuff like that. Go, oh, no, who goes there? Right, we're going to work our way through that and understand the ministry of the priest so that you know you can do things. Like, did you know, for example, if someone had been murdered on the land, but they didn't know who did it, the priest had to go out and make sacrifice so that the land could be atoned for so that the sins of the land wouldn't push the people of Israel out. What's that got to do with me? It means you get to do the same thing. It means you get to heal the land. You can pray for the land. It means that you can do things that will affect this nation and stop this nation from spewing us out or calling, causing the judgment of God to be poured out on our nation. You and I have a wonderful and amazing privilege and responsibility, but we're not doing it because I just think we, we just don't know what it is that we're supposed to be doing, if we're honest with ourselves. Okay. Let's bring this into land in a minute. I just want to go to this uh, last scripture here, which is Ezekiel 43, verse 5. Ezekiel 43 and verse 5. Now, one of the things that, that we're trying to do is we want, we want this place and certainly the place we're going to be building to be a a a place of like a, like a school and so it will be teaching things we'll be doing like Christian education there amongst other things but it will also be a place where we teach the word of God already like I don't know on Mondays we do things like we teach through the whole book of Revelation uh, we've been doing that for a year now we're halfway through it so it's like a two-year course then on Thursdays we do things like prayer school teaching people how to pray because most Christians don't really know how to pray very well I mean who would not want to know how to pray more efficiently more effectively etc etc yeah I think it's great so I've been running that now for about 16 months and and the amount of revelation and, and uh, things that people are getting in that that school has been re a real blessing so we want people to learn. We want the church to be a school, a place where people can come and learn. Now, this is really important. Ezekiel 43, verse 5. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. This is of the temple. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Hallelujah. The glory of the Lord is not on the streets. 
The glory of the Lord is in the most holy place. And the most holy place is where the, where the priests come before the Lord. In this case, only the high priest. And he can come right into the Holy of Holies before the Ark of the Covenant, which is the manifest presence of God. And he can come into the presence of Almighty God. And from there, he can come back out and cause effect to even the sins of the nation. What a privilege, what an honour that we as believers must live our lives in the glory of God in the most sacred place and then come out. But most of the time we're like those people milling around the outer courts and that is the expression of most Christians' experience. Outer court Christianity is not what you're called to. You're called to so much more. You're called to come into the Holy of Holies. You're called to come before the Ark of the Covenant. And you're called to intercede on before nations and your people and kings and powers and authorities and dominions, whether you like them or not. Amen. Hallelujah. Sorry, shouldn't shout. I'll give you a headache. <laughs> but what a privilege that we have. And that today is what's missing from today's church. We have this wonderful outer court, all this busyness stuff, mission trips, um, ministries to the old age, uh, food banks, all of that. And in the middle is that huge big bit and no one's going in there, except for a few. The true life of the church starts in that building. And then from there, it moves into the outer court and from the outer court into the wider world. That's how it has to be. And so I'm going to spend the next nine weeks, nine to 12 weeks, working through this all through the Bible about the priesthood of believers, our responsibility, the resurrection of the tabernacle of David, and all that that means, so that we can start moving as a church to where God wants us to be, which is a more biblical-based form of church. And I believe that's going to be the kind of church that's going to see the move of God that we need to see in the days ahead. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you bless us, Lord God. I pray that you will help us, Lord, to get our heads around this. I pray as a church, Lord, and a network, that you will help us to gradually steer around, Lord Jesus, and change our DNA, Lord Jesus, and come back to what your Bible says, Lord God, and start living our life the way that you have designed and the way that you have intended it, according to sacred scripture, both Old and New Testament. And Lord, we just pray you bless us, help us, and give us understanding. In Jesus' mighty name, and all the saints said, Amen. Hallelujah.